Good morning. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. This morning's text, we will be in Acts 15, and we will be reading the first 11 verses. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. May God be glorified by the preaching of his word. Thank you, brother. Let's all pray together as we come to God's Word this morning. Our Father and our God, how grateful we are for your Word and for the great truth that it proclaims to us. And Father, as we come into this passage of your Word this morning, we are coming to the very heart of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, and we give you praise for that Gospel. And so, Father, this morning we ask that you would help us that you would open up our minds and our hearts, that your Holy Spirit would be with us to illuminate the truth that we are going to come into contact with this morning, and that you would help us to understand the great truth of the gospel in a way that continues the transformation of our lives by the renewing of our minds. And so, Father, give us grace this morning. May the words of my mouth and may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight as we come to your living and active word this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, after several weeks away, I am excited to return here today with you all to the book of Acts and to God's revelation to us here, to God's message to us here of how the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ absolutely exploded into the world in the days of the book of Acts and made this massive impact in this world despite all of the unrelenting opposition and persecution 
that the gospel was met with in those early days. And that is what makes the book of Acts such an important one for us, and also such an encouraging one for us to read and to study, for the church of Jesus Christ to to meditate on and to dwell on in whatever generation we're in, in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, until Jesus returns. Because the reality is that there is no less opposition to the gospel now than there was in the days when this book was written. The reality is that there is no less opposition to God and to His law and to His Son and to His truth and to His holiness in the world today than there was in the days when Paul walked on the earth and proclaimed the gospel for the first time. In the earliest years of the church, in in the book of Acts, in the years when this book was being written, remember the relative number of disciples and and followers of Jesus, uh, the relative number of of Christians and and true churches in this world was, was tiny compared to what it is now, right? Compared to the number of churches and Christians in the world today. And even as this tiny little group of followers of Jesus, they faced this massive opposition. And they faced the very, very real threats of of persecution and of martyrdom as the world and the devil and the people and the governments and the institutions who were in opposition to Jesus Christ did their best to squelch the gospel and to stamp out the church and to try to prevent the spread of Christianity throughout the world. And you would think by the world's standards, by the world's measures, by any metrics by which the world considers things, that the church didn't stand a chance in those days. Because there were so few Christians, and there were so few churches, and there was so much opposition. And yet, Jesus Christ was faithful to His promise. I will build my church. And the gates of hell themselves will not prevail against it. And the reason why Jesus was able to keep His promise, and the reason why the church was built and not thwarted, and why in fact it it thrived, and was even in the words of Fox's Book of Martyrs, watered by the blood of the apostles and the saints and the martyrs, And why it grew, the reason why is because Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and He is the Lord of His church. And no power in this world comes anywhere near the power of God. And no purpose in this world comes anywhere near the purposes of God. And there is nothing in this world that can even begin to hope to thwart a purpose that God has purposed. And so despite all of the persecution, despite all of the opposition, the church grew. And that should give us hope, right? Because in this world there is opposition, there is persecution. And the antithesis between this world and God's kingdom is becoming more and more clear and obvious to us in this world, even in the United States of America today. And sometimes that gets discouraging. But don't be discouraged. Because God has His purposes, and Christ has His church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. And so we've seen already in the book of Acts, the kinds of persecution 
and opposition that Christians were subjected to in the early days of the church. Paul chronicles his own experiences of persecution in other places all throughout the New Testament. And in the previous chapter that we looked at in the book of Acts several weeks ago now, chapter 14, we saw it, didn't we? We saw the unbelieving hatred of God and Jesus boil over onto Paul and and affect his life in a very tangible way there in the city of Lystra where, where these Jewish people who hated Jesus dragged Paul outside of the city and stoned him nearly to death. They thought that they had killed him, and that was their purpose, right? That was their intention. They had all gotten together and come from Antioch and Iconium where Paul had had preached before, and they'd run him out of town there. And now they've come all the way out to the city of Lystra, more than 80 miles away. All of these unbelieving Jewish people walked by foot more than 80 miles in order to not only raise their voices in opposition to Paul and the Gospel, but to kill him. To put him to death. And remember, that's what they thought, that's what they thought that they had done. But God, mercifully and sovereignly, spared Paul's life. And after they stoned him nearly to death there outside of the city limits of Lystra, Paul got back up off the ground and went back into the city and then continued the ministry of the gospel, returning even to Iconium and to Antioch, where those Jewish persecutors had come from. Because literally, to the Apostle Paul, the ministry of the gospel mattered more than life itself. Because Christ mattered more. And because the kingdom of God matters more than life itself. And we know, don't we, from the rest of Scripture, we know from history, we know from the reality that continues on in the world around us even today, we know that the hatred of God, that the hatred of Christ, that the opposition to the gospel, that the persecution of the church continues on as it has all throughout the history of the church. And we know that it will continue on until the day when Jesus returns. Even as Paul and Barnabas taught the Christians there in Lystra, and in Iconium, and in Antioch, where all the persecution was at a fever pitch, they said in Acts 14.22, they strengthened the souls of the disciples, they encouraged them to continue in the faith, and they said to them that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They did not try to sell them some health and wealth and prosperity gospel. They did not try to promise them easier days. They said, no, the way of Christ is the way of the cross and the pathway that He has called you to walk on and following Him is a pathway where you're going to have to bear your crosses and where you will encounter suffering and tribulation. So, continue on in the faith. Endure persevere and be strong in the faith no matter what happens for God will build his church so again by by earthly standards by earthly measures the church in its earliest days was 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 tremendously fragile or at least it should have been if it was only composed of earthly stuff it was massively vulnerable to the opposition and persecution that was being poured out on the church in its infancy. 
And there's no way Paul should have or would have survived or that the gospel or the fledgling church should have or would have thrived if it was not for the sovereign hand of Jesus Christ fulfilling His promise to build His church such that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And that is so encouraging to us as we seek, as we need to be strengthened in our souls and continue on in the faith through the many tribulations and oppositions and maybe even persecutions that will continue to mount against the gospel and the church of Jesus Christ today. Now today we come into Acts chapter 15 where Luke records for us what's come to be known as the Jerusalem Council. You might even have that heading written above Acts chapter 15 in your Bible this morning. The Jerusalem Council, it was a time when the apostles all came together from wherever they had gone. They all came together in Jerusalem in order to address, in order to discuss, in order ultimately to resolve this massively important controversy that had cropped up in those early years of the church that touched on the very heart of the gospel itself. Verse 1 says, Some men had come down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. They put a prerequisite on the gospel. They put a prerequisite on salvation. In other words, these men, whoever they were, were teaching that salvation cannot come by the grace of God alone. Through faith in Jesus Christ alone, apart from the works of the law, which is exactly what the New Testament scriptures so clearly teach, right? And so clearly proclaim in, in places like Romans 3 and, and Romans 4 and Philippians 3 and lots and lots of other places. Salvation comes by God's grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, apart from works of the law. But of course, see, right, the point is, at the time of the events that were taking place in Acts chapter 15, none of those scriptures had been written yet. And so there was still lots and lots of confusion in the minds of some Christians in the early days of the church. And with that confusion came a temptation to compromise. And those are the two things that we need to consider together as we work through this chapter, Acts chapter 15, especially verses 1 through 35, over the course of the next few weeks together. We need to consider confusion and compromise. Confusion over the truth of the gospel. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the weeks that are to come. But today what I want to look at is the temptation to compromise the truth of the gospel in order to try to find some middle ground with unbelievers, which is what was going on here in Acts chapter 15. As people tried to make what God says more compatible and more palatable to what the world wants. And so as we come now today, to step foot into the waters of Acts chapter 15, that's the dynamic that was at play. Certain people 
had a, a particular worldly, fleshly, sinful impulse that is incompatible with the true gospel. And so they were insisting that the gospel truth that the apostles had been preaching needed to be modified, needed to be augmented, needed to be adapted to this fleshly impulse. And their insistence on that was intimidating to many of the Christians who had heard the gospel, who had believed the gospel, and they were now tempted to concede ground to these false teachers and to compromise. And the the specific worldly and fleshly impulse that I'm talking about that that was incompatible with the gospel, but that was starting to pervert it, was the impulse of legalism. Legalism. Now be careful how you understand that word. Because it gets thrown around a lot, it gets misused a lot. And it's easy for people who have no desire to keep God's law to call anybody who wants to keep God's law and live a holy life to call them a legalist. Legalism does not mean that you're interested in keeping God's law. That you're interested in doing what God says is right and wrong and holy. That's not what legalism means. Legalism is simply this. It's the insistence that God is only going to give His favor to those who earn it from Him by their own righteous efforts. That's what legalism is. And that's an instinct that is as old in this world as sin is, right? As soon as Adam and Eve violated God's law in the Garden of Eden, what did they do? They felt shame. And so they hid themselves from God. They knew their guilt. They knew that God's favor was not with them anymore. And so their impulse in their sin, because of the same pride that had caused them to sin in the first place, and because in that pride they didn't comprehend the depth of their sin and how how severe it was, their impulse was to try to do something themselves in order to fix it to cover their sin, and to try to put themselves back into God's good graces. To try to earn His favor by compensating for their shame in their own way. And their own way was to sew fig leaves together in order to cover themselves, which, of course, wasn't only entirely inadequate, but as an expression of their sinful shame, it was a shameful, disgraceful affront to the holiness of God, which they had fallen infinitely further short of than fig leaves could ever hope to address. See, their sin and their shame demanded death. It required Bloodshed. It didn't require foliage. What needed to happen when Adam and Eve sinned was either that they needed to die or the holy God Himself needed to cover them with the skins of sacrificial animals slain in their stead as sacrificial substitutes for the payment of death that their sins deserved. And that's what God did, right? 
he looked at their fig leaves and he goes, you, you think that deals with it? You think that covers it? You think what you've done compensates for the sin that you've committed? And then God Himself, instead of destroying them in His holy wrath, covered them with the skins of those animals. And of course, that kicks off the whole Old Testament, doesn't it? Those animal skins that God covered Adam and Eve with, those animals whose lives were sacrificed to produce those coverings for sin, those were the first in a long line of Old Testament sacrifices for the covering of the sins of the people of God because nothing that the people could do for themselves was anywhere near sufficient to pay the actual price of their sins before the holy God. Because as sinners, all our best works are nothing more than filthy rags, like Jeremiah says. They are pathetically inadequate, and they are disgracefully offensive offerings of presumptuous human pride to try to appease the infinite holiness of God and earn His favor because in our sin, we completely underestimate the depth of our sin in contrast to God's holiness. And so when we sin against Him and then go, oh, I I got it, I'll make up for it, and we try to do some good work in our sinfulness, disregarding how great our sinfulness is and how great His holiness is, All it does is compound our offense before Him. All it does is pile sin upon sin. It does nothing to actually deal with the problem. Sin requires nothing short of death and the everlasting judgment of God. And no fig leaves and no amount of good deeds done from sinful human motives can ever hope to meet that standard. And of course, in a very real sense, Even all of the blood of the sacrificial animals in the Old Covenant era, none of it could ever actually adequately fully deal with sin. All of that was just a a provisional God-given measure to temporarily cover the sins of the people and and to very, very graphically illustrate by, by all of the blood that was being shed over and over and over, year after year after year in the temple, to illustrate that a much, much greater provision was ultimately needed to deal with human sin. A much, much more significant sacrifice. The sacrifice of Jesus. The shedding of His holy blood on the cross where the incarnate God poured out His own infinitely valuable blood and life as the only adequate sacrifice for sin that could actually put away sin and create an everlasting peace between sinners and the holy God. And so see, there is, here's the point coming to Acts 15, there is in the fleshly sinful residue of every sinful human heart, there is this impulse that we call legalism, that wants to do what Adam and Eve tried to do, that wants to try to pretend that our sin isn't as as horrifying as it really is. That we haven't really fallen nearly so far short of God's infinite glory and holiness than we actually have. And that there is some way that we 
can work our way back into God's good graces and God's favor by sowing together the fig leaves of our own self-righteousness and good works. Because we are too sinfully, audaciously proud to admit that in fact we're so sinful that nothing short of death and condemnation is a fitting punishment for our crimes against God. So see, this is, this is what we mean by legalism. Legalism is not a commitment to keep God's law. God's law is good. God's law is holy. God's law is true. God's law is what defines what is right in this world. What is good, what is beautiful in this world. And a commitment to keeping God's law is just called obedience. But see, what makes the keeping of God's law legalistic and not holy is the motivation, right? True holiness and genuine obedience to God are motivated out of a love for God and a desire to please Him. And everywhere the Bible commands and commends that. But legalism is when shame and guilt and fear gets mixed with insidious, sinful pride, and then that grotesque spiritual stew prompts a desire to try to conform to God's law, not out of love for God, not out of gratitude for God's grace, but out of this this fearful pride and hypocrisy. And that's what was going on all throughout the Old Testament and had come to a, a head and a culmination with the Pharisees in the New Testament. And this is what they were characterized by. And now in Acts 15, there were some of the party of the Pharisees who had become sympathetic to the message of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. They were starting to recognize Him as their Messiah, but they hadn't gotten rid of this legalism yet. And so they were insisting, well, okay, if you're going to believe in Jesus as your Savior, that's fine, but you still have to do something. You can't be saved unless you do something to earn it. And they're letting this legalism come now and and corrupt the gospel. That's what's going on. You remember the Pharisees, right? characterized by this rigorous conformity to the law of God, to be sure, but it was a conformity and a kind of obedience to God's law that Jesus absolutely hated and absolutely despised because at its core was not love for God, but human pride and hypocrisy and greed. And because they didn't love God, they had this horribly inadequate grasp of God's true holiness and of, the, and of the great horrible reality of human sinfulness. And that caused them to have this resentment for the true gospel. Because the true gospel insists that the only possible solution to their sin was for God to send Jesus to die as their substitutes, and that no amount of good works that they could do would ever be anything more than this offensively presumptuous fig leaf presentation in the sight of a holy God. And they didn't want to admit that. They refused to admit that the only way to be saved was by the grace of God alone, through the finished and perfect work of God on their behalf alone. 
received through faith alone, apart from our cooperation in trying to do any good works of our own to earn God's favor. They wanted, insisted on pretending that there's something we can do to fix it. And so when they heard this gospel coming from the mouths of the apostles of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, they said, no, that can't be right. Some kind of good works are necessary in order for people to be saved. And especially for those Gentiles to be saved. See, they still harbored this sense of superiority. If those dirty, filthy, rotten Gentiles are going to be saved, they're really going to have to do something. They're going to have to be circumcised, first of all, they said. At least that, in keeping with the law and the custom of Moses, or else it's not even possible for them to be saved. And then as verse 5 says, some of these believers who were from the party of the Pharisees, who still had a lot of this sort of legalistic blood pumping through their veins, they said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. They've got to get really, really, really good at doing everything that the Old Testament prescribes or else they can't be saved. That's their prerequisite. The definition of legalism, see? And it caused this this significant controversy in the early church which required the apostles to get together and talk about it in Jerusalem and that's what we have recorded for us here in Acts chapter 15. Now, here's what I want to talk about this morning. Before the events of this chapter, this had become already such a controversial issue for the early church that none other than the apostle Peter himself got caught up in this web of legalism. And the Apostle Paul had to rebuke Peter to his face for imbibing this spirit of of legalism. And that's the episode that I want to talk about and spend the rest of our time looking at today sort of as a preface to what will come out of it, what will come afterward in the Jerusalem Council. You'll notice here in Acts 15, in the verses that Jacob read, that when the apostles meet in Jerusalem to take up this question of whether or not the Gentiles are going to need to get circumcised and do works of the law in order to be saved, you'll notice that as they're talking about it in Acts 15, Peter at this point is fully on board, isn't he, with the rest of the apostles, including Paul, in saying that this burden of law-keeping in order to be saved should not be placed on the necks of the apostles, or the the Gentiles, right? You You can't hang on their necks this expectation and requirement that they have to earn their salvation because we couldn't even do that, Peter says in verse 11, right? In verses 7 through 11, Peter rejects this legalism. And he becomes absolutely clear in his words about the gospel of salvation by grace alone. We believe, Peter says in verse 11, that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. We can't earn our salvation, so we can't expect them to. We're all going to be saved by grace, Peter says in verse 11. So see, at the time of the 
council here in Jerusalem in Acts 15, Peter doesn't show any kind of discord with any of the other apostles in terms of this legalism that has been influenced by the Pharisees and has come to cause confusion in the church. But, turn over to Galatians chapter 2, the book of Galatians chapter 2 with me this morning. And I want to show you this episode where this wasn't always the case where Peter ended up being out of step radically in several distinct ways with the Gospel, and Paul had to confront him for it. Galatians chapter 2, Peter was compromising with legalism. He was caving under the pressure of it. Galatians chapter 2, look at verse 11. But when, This is Paul writing. But when Cephas, that's Peter, when he came to Antioch, he means Antioch in Syria, not Pisidian Antioch up in Asia Minor where we just saw him on his first missionary journey. The first Antioch, you remember back in Syria before they left for Cyprus where Cornelius' household was saved, the first Gentile converts, where Peter was given that vision in Acts chapter 10? of all of the, the, the animals coming down from heaven on that sheet, and God proclaimed them all clean in order to teach Peter that salvation comes by grace to the Gentiles. Remember? So Paul says, at a later time than that, at a later time than Peter's first episode in Antioch there, when he came back to Antioch, I had to oppose him to his face. Because Peter stood condemned. Because certain men came from James, so disciples of the Apostle James, and Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Well, we know that, right? In Acts chapter 10, that's what happened. He ate dinner in Cornelius' house. He got, he got criticized for doing that. Here he's doing it again. He was eating with the Gentiles, but when these disciples of James came, he drew back, Peter did. He separated himself from the Gentiles, fearing what Paul calls the circumcision party. That means the party of the Pharisees, those who were insisting that you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And the rest of the Jews with Peter acted hypocritically with him. So that even Barnabas, Paul's companion, was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now let's talk about what all this means. Here's the situation. Again, Peter had come back to Antioch in Syria where that first group of Gentiles had come to faith in Jesus back in Acts chapter 10 and 11, right? From the household of, of Cornelius. After their conversion of these Gentiles, sometime after the events of Acts chapter 10 and 11, and, and close to the time, or in the time, between Acts chapter 14 and Acts chapter 15, because the... The end of Acts chapter 14 says that Paul and Barnabas returned to Antioch in Syria from their journey up to Asia Minor, and they found Peter there. And Peter 
had begun and continued to fellowship and eat meals with this growing group of Gentile Christians. But at some point, these disciples of James came and met Peter and began to criticize him and intimidate him for eating with the Gentiles. And of course, as we learned in Acts chapter 10 some months ago, the issue had to do with the food that was being eaten. Because some of it was food that had been forbidden by all of the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws. And we learned, didn't we, that those laws no longer apply, right? God showed Peter that very clearly in that vision in Acts 10 of of all of the animals coming down on that big sheet. And God saying, look, Peter, you're hungry. Rise and kill and eat. And Peter said, no, I won't defile myself by eating those animals. And God said, don't call them unclean when I've called them clean. And the point was, they could eat all those foods now. And more importantly, that there was no distinction between Jews and Gentiles anymore, that they could be together as one body through faith in Jesus Christ. You remember all of that from back in Acts chapter 10. But see, all of that was hard for many, many Jewish people to get through their heads and to lay hold of and to grasp. They were unwilling to change their traditions and they were still insisting that it was wrong to eat those foods that the Old Testament called unclean and that it was wrong to eat with the Gentiles because they saw the Gentiles as unclean. So they were criticizing Peter for doing those things. And Peter, of all people, right? Bold confident, brash Peter eventually caved in under that criticism and intimidation. And because of it, he started to withdraw from the Gentile Christians, to separate himself from them, to refuse to eat with them. And when he did that, he began to be an influence on others. Because all of the Jews who were with him started to do the same thing. And so the net result was that the church of Jesus Christ, now composed of Jews and Gentiles, was being divided, was being pulled apart. And and this is what Paul had to confront with Peter. And here in Galatians 2, Paul calls Peter's actions hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Look at verse 12. Paul says, Prior to the coming of certain men from James, Peter used to eat with the Gentiles. Now he's doing something different. See? In terms of what he ate, at first Peter had no problem with the Gentile diet or with having meals with the Gentiles because he was enjoying and rejoicing in and expressing the freedom of the gospel. Not only was he not being a legalist and requiring the Gentiles to keep all those old Jewish laws, he even realized that for him as a Jewish person, God had, in the gospel of Jesus Christ, God had given him freedom from all of those restrictions. Freedom to eat with the Gentiles and freedom to eat like the Gentiles. Welcome to bacon, Peter. Enjoy. Right? I mean, that was a big step for Peter. Or for any staunchly religious Jewish person, that was a big step for him to take. Especially in the first century when all of this was brand new. But you remember from Acts 10 that that's the step that Peter took. And you remember how God helped him get there, right? 
The gospel broke down all of the ethnic walls between Jews and Gentiles. All who are in Christ are one, regardless of ethnicity. And the gospel offers free grace apart from works of the law. So Peter, having gone through that in Acts 10 and 11, Peter knew more than anybody knew, or as well as any man ever knew, the freedom of the gospel. But before long, even Peter, who was so confident in that at one point, he was in trouble. Remember in Acts chapter 11, we learned that when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those who were circumcised, so again the Jewish people and the legalistic-minded Jewish people, they took issue with Peter saying, you went to uncircumcised men and you ate with them. So they were criticizing him for eating with Cornelius. They were criticizing him for exercising this gospel freedom that God had given him. And now this this group of Jews who criticized Peter in in Acts chapter 11, this is now the same group that came to Antioch and criticized Peter for doing the exact same thing here now at 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 a later time in Galatians chapter 2. But the difference now is Peter handles the criticism very, very differently in Galatians 2 than he did in Acts 11. In Acts, when they criticized him, Peter explained this vision that God had given him, this message that God had revealed to him. He stood up to the legalism and he defended his actions in eating with Cornelius' household. It came to a head in in verse 17 of Acts 11 where, where Peter said this about the Gentiles that he'd been criticized for eating with. He said, therefore, if God gave to them the same gift of salvation that he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ... Who am I to stand in God's way? Right? You remember? Remember how bold he was? And how did the Jews respond? This this is Acts 11, verse 18. When they heard this, they quieted down. Well, we can't answer that. And they glorified God and said, "Well, well, then if God has granted to the Gentiles this repentance that leads to life, then we'll accept it. So see, Peter's life had been radically changed at that point. He had come to understand that Gentiles don't have to to earn their salvation by keeping the Old Testament ceremonial laws as a precondition of being saved. And he also realized that he as a Jew now had been freed from all of that stuff as well. Slowly but surely, Peter and Paul had been moving towards this same understanding of the same gospel that the condition for receiving the Holy Spirit and enjoying all of the benefits of salvation It is simply a living faith in Jesus Christ, and that's all. Right? No diets, no circumcision, no good works to earn it. So when Peter went and ate with Gentile brothers and sisters in Antioch, the first time in Acts 11, he was in sync with the gospel. He was standing firm in his freedom and the reality of what God had done in Christ. He was honoring the sufficiency of Christ. He was living by faith. He was living in love to the Gentiles. His life was consistent with his belief. But then something happened. 
This group that Paul calls the circumcision party, this this group of Jewish people who were insisting that Gentiles must be circumcised and they must conform to the law of Moses or else they can't be saved. The same people who had been critical of Peter before, now they came up from Jerusalem to Antioch where Peter was. And again, they, they start criticizing this practice of Peter eating with the Gentiles. And this time, Peter was intimidated by them. Verse 12 says that he feared them. Galatians 2.12 He feared them. He didn't stand up to them this time. He didn't defend his freedom to them this time. He didn't stand firm in faith and love this time. He feared them and he crumbled under their criticism. He caved in under the weight And the impact was, and the result was, that he ended up cutting off fellowship with these Gentile brothers and sisters. Imagine how hurtful that must have been to them. Imagine how confusing that must have been to them who had come to faith through Peter's ministry of the Gospel. And now he won't even associate with them. Imagine how they must have felt to see Peter who who lived so boldly for the fear of the Lord now cave in for the fear of man. Imagine the damage that's being done in the church. And when Peter did all that, he did it as a leader. And and a lot of other Jewish believers followed him in it. Even Barnabas, Paul says, in verse 14, was being led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. Everything that has been built on the foundation of the gospel was in danger of being torn down. And all because... As verse 14 here of Galatians 2 says, the conduct of Peter and even Barnabas and others was not in step with the truth of the gospel. How critically important is it, brothers and sisters, for us to all walk in step with the gospel? Peter's life was out of sync. You see what that means? The benefits of the gospel can only be received by a living faith in the Son of God, not by keeping the law in order to earn it. But when the gospel is received by living faith, your life, your life changes. Your life becomes transformed. One commentator puts it in musical terms. When you finally hear and believe the drumbeat of the gospel, the rhythm of your step changes because it becomes tuned to the gospel. And that's what we've got to understand if we call ourselves Christians at all. Our lives have to be marching to the beat of the drum of the gospel and not the drum of our sinful flesh or of this world. Our lives have to be in step with the truth that we believe. And these verses in Galatians 2 show us, show us three things that were being exhibited by Peter that are out of step with the truth and the reality of the gospel. They are fear and hypocrisy and legalism. And faith in the gospel has got to guard us from these three things. First of all, fear. When the legalistic Jews came up to Antioch and criticized Peter, he became afraid of them. He became intimidated by them. 
He was afraid what they were saying about him. He was afraid what they thought of him. He was afraid how they were going to treat him. He was afraid of what they would say about him to other people. He was afraid of how all of that might affect his life. And he feared that in his flesh more than he feared the Lord. And here's the thing. That impulse of fearfulness did not come from the Gospel. Fear did not come from faith, and it never does. It comes from flesh. On the contrary, what the Gospel does is it creates and it forges confidence and hope and boldness even in the face of persecution. Isn't that what Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7? God didn't give us a spirit of fear. The gospel didn't instill fear in us. What God gives us is a spirit of power and love and self-control. The gospel means that God Almighty is for us. How How can that instill fear in us? If you know that no one can stand against you because God is with you and God is for you, then who do you have to fear? Faith in this truth, faith in Christ, faith in the gospel elevates us above being ashamed of what we believe in even when the whole world mocks us for it. It elevates us above being ashamed to call ourselves disciples of Jesus or or being ashamed to stand firm in the midst of, of ridicule or even persecution. Why would you be ashamed? Why would you be afraid if God's with you and if God's for you? Faith in the gospel forges a confidence that keeps us from doing what Peter did. Folding underneath the pressure of those who criticize the truth. And I think that we're living in a time where that's exactly what the church is doing. They are doing exactly what Peter did in Galatians chapter 2. They're listening more to the criticism of the world than they are to the Word of God, and they're being intimidated and they're folding. They're caving. They're intimidated. They're marching to the beat of a different drum than the gospel. And the Word of God would tell us we must only have one master, and his grace and his power in our lives must. Free us from fearing any other. The world's wisdom, the world's logic, the world's drumbeat must not define what God's people do and how we do it. And so even when the world goes so far as to persecute God's people for, for standing up for His truth, we must fear God and not men. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid for what can man do to me. So, first of all, fear is out of step with the gospel. And if you feel fear and you feel intimidation and the temptation to compromise, it's because you're listening to the drumbeat of the world in your flesh and you've lost the drumbeat of the gospel. And... Fear, which is out of step with the gospel, leads, secondly, to hypocrisy, which is also radically out of step with the gospel. So, verse 13 of Galatians 2 says that Peter and the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically. Even Barnabas was carried away into hypocrisy. And the word hypocrite literally means to have two faces. 
It's a, a, a word that was originally used in the theatrical world. Stage actors in, in dramas, in plays, would change character and play multiple roles during the performance simply by putting on different masks and costumes during the, during the play, during the performance. And Paul says, you know what, Peter, that's what you're doing. First, back in Acts chapter 10 and 11, you were wearing the gospel mask. And now, you're wearing a whole different... You're, you're wearing a let's please the Jews mask. You're playing a different role. You're a hypocrite. While, while Paul and, or Peter and Barnabas were wearing their, their gospel masks, they were proclaiming oneness in Christ with the Gentiles. They were proclaiming freedom from Old Testament ceremonial laws. They were proclaiming salvation by, by grace through faith alone. But then when the Jews put on the pressures, they, they changed masks. And they withdrew from the Gentiles. And they pandered to the legalists. So their hearts believed one thing, but, but, but then their actions were, were proclaiming something different. Because they feared these Jews and they sought to avoid trouble with them and they did it at the expense of their principles and beliefs. They feared man and so they, they, they put up a front. They acted hypocritically. And listen, if there was ever a problem that was common to the various ages of the history of the church, it's this kind of hypocrisy, isn't it? Professing one thing and living something else, talking the talk, but walking a very different walk. Christians who preach the holiness of God, but secretly are living lives of great immorality. Christians who preach the gospel of love and grace, but, but they harbor pride and arrogance in their lives. And often then it bleeds out into their ministries and affects the way their sheep are walking. Hypocrisy shows itself in all kinds of places, and the reality is that all hypocrisy is rooted in fleshly fear. In Luke 12, Jesus warns His disciples to beware of the legalistic leaven of the Pharisees. Leaven is like yeast, right? You, you, you put a little tiny bit in a lump of dough and it suffuses the whole thing and causes it to swell and rise. And the, the legalism is like that, Jesus says. If you get a little of it in you, it's going to affect your whole life. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which he said is hypocrisy. And then in that same passage, in verse 4 of, of Luke 12, Jesus says that the root of legalistic hypocrisy, which corrupts a life like, like leaven permeates a lump of dough, the root of it is fear. Is fear. Because when you're afraid, you're tempted to compromise. You're tempted to put on a different mask. And that is why it is so out of step with the Gospel. When you feel insecure... When you feel frightened, when you feel more intimidated by what people think of you than by what God thinks of you, and when you're tempted to put up a front so that you can avoid having to take a stand for what you say you believe is right, when you're in that place, then the real battle that you're fighting is a battle to believe the gospel. And that's where so many Christians and so many churches are at these days. They're afraid, they're intimidated by the government by the culture, by their friends and neighbors, 
by the unbelieving intellectuals of this world, by the the leftist elites who are exchanging truth for lies and calling us all idiots and bigots. And people who fear that, Christians who fear that, are tempted to compromise. They're tempted to concede ground so that they can have people's approval. So that the world will tell them that they're kind. That they're balanced. That they're reasonable. But in their fear, then they sell out on the gospel. And they fall into hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is radically out of step with the gospel. And the third thing, because we're out of time here, the third thing that is out of step with the gospel in these verses is legalism. Look at what Paul says to Peter in Galatians 2 and verse 14. If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? See what he's saying? Look, for all this time, you've been, you've been eating with Gentiles and you've been eating like Gentiles. You've been enjoying the bacon. How are you now going to try to compel them through your legalism to live like the Jews, to concede to the demands of these legalists that say, don't eat, don't touch, be circumcised? The point of that verse is this, Peter's actions were speaking louder than Peter's words. As an apostle, he cut off fellowship with these these Gentile brothers and sisters because he folded under this pressure. He caved into the fear. He acted hypocritically. His life was saying that these Gentiles were not worthy of fellowship. His life was saying that they weren't as pure as he was, that they weren't as fully Christian as he was. And that's what legalism does. It divides and it distinguishes and it puts some above others and others under others. And this is how Peter was was compelling, without words even, compelling the Gentiles to live like Jews by his hypocritical life. And that compulsion amounts to legalism. Requiring that a person do some work in order to be accepted by God and by His church. Now, you may not do it with dietary laws, but, but I promise you we're all tempted to do that. We're all tempted to look at other people who are different than us and say, well, unless you dress like me, Unless you act like me, unless you look like me, unless you cut your hair like me, unless whatever it is, you're not worthy of my fellowship. That kind of legalism is out of step with the gospel. Any Christian who professes the free grace of Jesus Christ but lives in such a way that causes other Christians to feel that in order to be acceptable in the church, or acceptable to Christ, they need something more than grace. They have to do something. Any Christian who does that to somebody else is a legalistic hypocrite, like Peter was. Christians do this all the time. We turn our noses up at one another all the time. We refuse to have fellowship with with other people unless certain criteria are met all the time. It's out of step with the gospel. Because Jesus Christ did not demand that certain criteria be met in my life before He died for my sins. While you were yet a sinner, Christ died for you, ungodly person. That's what the Gospel says. And Paul says down in verse 21 here of Galatians 2, I don't nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. See what he means? 
If, if Titus had to be circumcised before he could enjoy fellowship with other Christians, if, if the Gentiles in Antioch had to refrain from eating pork before they could enjoy fellowship in the body of Christ, then Paul goes so far as to say grace is nullified. And Christ died in vain. But on the other side of the coin is the great truth that Paul confronted Peter with and it led to Peter's repentance by the time we get into Acts 15. And that truth is Jesus Christ did not die in vain. He died to free us from death. He died to free us from condemnation. He died to free us from our pathetic, helpless attempts to justify ourselves. He died to free us from fear. He died to free us from hypocrisy. And He died to free us from self-righteous legalism. And so see, it's the world that beats the drum that causes us to march in fear and hypocrisy and legalism. But the rhythm of the Gospel is hope and purity and freedom and love and grace. And so when you see a sinner who needs to repent, you go and you go with grace and you go with love and you go proclaiming the freedom of Jesus Christ. The weight of sin and the requirement of being holy of God as holy is, 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 that's an impossibly heavy weight for us to bear. We can't save ourselves by trying to keep that standard. But it's not impossible for the Son of God who loved us and gave Himself up for us. He did obey perfectly. He is holy as God is holy because He is God. And so the Gospel teaches us that it is Jesus Christ who sufficiently did everything that needed to be done for us to be saved. And so today, let's close just just saying this. Let the truth of the Gospel fill you up with the fruit that it bears. Listen for the drumbeat of the Gospel and let it change your life and direct your steps. I'll confess this. We were in the car yesterday driving up the 101 and I wasn't done with my sermon. So I'm in the passenger seat with my laptop and Wendy's in the driver's seat and she's tired so she's got music cranked. And it's very different music than is, is good to listen to when you're writing a sermon. I don't know what it was but it was some kind of dance music and I had headphones on and I had my music cranked as high as I could crank it and still the drumbeat of the music from the car was coming through and making it difficult for me to write and think. And I had, to, I had to tune it out. I had to push it out. I had to not listen to that competing noise. And I had to tune myself in to the beat that was coming through my headphones. And that's life, everyone. The world is pounding on its drums, wanting you to walk in legalism and fear and hypocrisy. And you have got to drown it out with the, the rhythm of the gospel which produces in us what? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. A Christian whose life cannot be easily characterized by that stuff, those fruits of the Spirit, is, is a Christian who's out of step with the Gospel and marching to the beat of a different drum. So let's just pray this morning that God will will work in us through the Gospel, through the power of grace, 
to both will and to do that which is according to his good pleasure. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the freedom of the gospel. We thank you so much for what Christ has done for us, for doing for us what we could never ever do for ourselves by trying to keep the law. And we pray, God, that we would focus so much on the free grace of the gospel that it would fill us up with such a gratitude and such a love for you and a love for others that grace would come pouring out of us and that holiness would come pouring out of us, that conformity to your law would come pouring out of our lives, but not out of fear and not out of pride, but out of love and out of gratitude and out of devotion to you and a desire to please you and a desire to love and bless other people. And so would you cause our lives to be characterized by love and joy and peace and patience and all of the rest of the fruit of the Spirit that we might live lives that are pleasing to you, that we might live free of hypocrisy, that we might live free of legalism, and that we might bless others and show them the way of the grace of Jesus Christ that leads to everlasting life. And so, Father, help us live in this freedom and give you praise for it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Take your, take your bulletins and turn to page 11. And in response, let's stand up. And I know there's, there's fewer of us this morning than some mornings, but this is a song that cannot be sung timidly or with meekness. So let it rip as we sing, And Can It Be. <laughs> <laughs>